It is indeed a very satisfying thing to deliver the word after that. Our text this morning is in Mark chapter 2. And we will also look at James chapter 2 and two Psalms, Psalms 47 and Psalms 150. There are two realities that make religious faith a stressful thing. And that is, one, God's holiness and coming before Him pure. And the second thing happens to be man's sinfulness. We're always having to deal with the the balance of these issues and the interaction of these issues. How is it that we approach God if we're sinful? And if we're sinful, then what is it that He is willing to accept? That's true, not only approaching God, but doing His work. Because there is pulsating in the human heart a desire not to mix the two. Lemon Santa has recently retired from Yale University or the Yale Divinity School, where he taught missions and world Christianity. But he grew up in Ghana as a Muslim. And he was taught very strict rules about interacting with women in public. He left his village and went to the city and began to work for the government and had some dealings with education. Well, in education, in the education circles in Ghana happened to be filled with Christian missionaries, many of them from the United Kingdom. Very zealous, very warm people that did not observe all the laws that Lam and Santa observed in interactions in public with men or with women. Now, as a Muslim, he would approach women and keep a certain distance. And he would have to begin to calculate his distance from them. And then he would have to calculate uh, any kind of physical touch, which was strictly prohibited. And if the woman got too close, he'd have to back up. And there were a large number of such rules he had to observe. And so instead of thinking about the other person and their need, Laman Senna, as a Muslim, would think about rules. He was entirely sincere. But he happened to run headlong into a female missionary in the capital city of Ghana who didn't care about such rules. She was an effervescent, gregarious Christian woman dedicated to the cause of Christ in Ghana and just loved people and loved Muslims and didn't have a lot of patience with these rules. And so she would meet him in an office building or someplace nearby in the city and greet him and hug him and didn't think about all of those rules but thought about his needs. And Laman Senna said, Never in my life had I ever met such unbounded goodwill. Goodwill that was unbounded by human rules. It made him uncomfortable, but it also satisfied him as well. And that was a significant part in convincing him that Jesus is the Christ and a God of love who loves to forgive sin. Because he saw it in her. Unbounded goodwill. Well, that's something of what we read of Jesus here in Mark chapter 2. Jesus had unbounded goodwill. But those around him didn't always have that. He deals here with some of the Pharisees and Bible scholars that are called scribes here. And not really scholars of the Bible. They weren't very scholarly about the Bible. They were rather scholarly about their 
views and their literature. It's what they were. And when they interacted with people in public, they went through some mental gymnastics, much like the Terminator did when he would visualize a computer screen in front of him and and go through uh, a diagnostic tool to survey the situation. And so instead of thinking about love, instead of thinking about holiness, and instead of thinking about what's really important to God, they would calculate through an awful lot of rules, like Muslims do, of the more stricter sex. Jesus had unbounded goodwill. And many of the Jews and Pharisees had a difficult time with this. Jesus shocked them. Now this text then, that we're going to read in a moment, and study, actually in just a moment, can guide us as we deal with some current issues that face us. For example, what kind of music should we use in worship? What kind of instruments should we use? And should we repeat words in music and sing repetitious songs? I'm glad Friedrich Handel thought so and had allowed that to influence his Messiah. But then, what about, what about tattoos? I grew up in a home split over that issue in the same person. My dad had 12. He got them on an unfortunate evening in the Philippines when he was in the Navy. <laughs> and spent the first 18 years of my life threatening me if I ever got one. Do churches have permission to replace pews with chairs? And does it really matter? What about clothing and worship? What about what goes into the worship guide? What about Bible translations? What about dress to worship? Is there room for John the Baptist who wore camel skin robes? What about facial hair? What about makeup? There's some Baptist and Pentecostal denominations, not many, but few that think it's sin for women to wear makeup. My wife thinks it's sin for some of them not to. And then, (laughs) how far, how far do we let our teenagers expand and go beyond our convictions about certain things? Now, With a text like this, I need to give a caution. I am profoundly disinterested in stirring up any crowd that begins launching accusations or individuals that launch accusations against other individuals for loving mere religion or tradition, and I don't want us calling each other Pharisees. Biblically, most of the time in the current literature, When these issues are used and they're used as invectives against other sincere Christians, it might be a little too tightly wound. Um, They're they're used in a way that they were not used in the Scripture. The Scripture actually uses the word religion, tradition, and Pharisee negatively and positively. Religion, James 1.26, it uses it negatively. In verse 27, it uses it positively. Tradition, Matthew 15.3, uses it negatively. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, it uses it positively. Pharisee, uh, Matthew 23, 26, uses it negatively. John 3, 1, uses it positively when talking about Nicodemus and his conversion. I've grown a bit impatient with 
using these words as missiles against other Christians. I, I really think that when we start calling people Pharisees and traditionalists and religion, those words end up operating in rhetoric and conversation much like cussing does in the world. In fact, that's, that's one of the last remaining ways that Christians still cuss. And that's true about the word fundamentalist as, as well. And oftentimes they reveal more about the one using them than the person being accused. So we, we need to be careful. We need to get the chip off our shoulder and relax as well. There are some people, frankly, that are too tightly wound with tradition, but there are some people that are too tightly wound about being traditional, about being untraditional. Neither one is what we need. And we need to be careful of bearing false witness against our neighbor. That's what we need to do. But here in Mark chapter 2 and 3, Jesus is engaged in a series of conflicts with the Pharisees. And in these conflicts, Jesus clarified what was really important to him. He revealed his priorities. And so this morning what I'd like to do is analyze the text then apply it. In order to answer the question, what is really important to Jesus or what are his priorities? Well, let's first analyze the text. And if you read it carefully, you'll find there are two major divisions. One is this conflict over fasting in Mark chapter 2, verse 18 and 22. And then the second is a conflict over the Sabbath, Mark chapter 2, verse 23 through 35. And, and that conflict over the Sabbath has two divisions as well. Uh, there's an asking about the harvest on the Sabbath, and then there are attacks on healing on the Sabbath. Well, let's look at this conflict over fasting. The Pharisees ask a question in verse 18 that would have made sense in the first century. The disciples of John, so not just the Pharisees, but John's disciples, uh, and those of the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to him, Why did the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? That, that was not an unusual question. The Scripture, however, in Leviticus chapter 16, verses 24 through 29, really commanded only one annual fast. But the Pharisees reasoned if fasting once a year is good, then fasting, twi fasting twice a week is better. And so they would typically fast on Mondays and Thursdays of the week. And they began to insist upon that of others if they wanted to be holy and pure and used it as a standard of judgment with one another and against others. In fact, they were real dramatic in how they fast. They would cover their faces with ash. They would walk around in disheveled clothing. They would look mournful. In other words, there was no doubt that one of them was fasting. They let you know. They did. And so they're asking this question of Jesus. And what's interesting is that some of John's disciples join in. John's disciples oftentimes had more in common with the Pharisees than they did Jesus' disciples. Well, the Lord answers, and He gives three answers in three pictures. One is a wedding, a second is patches on clothing, and then wineskins. Uh, here's the Lord's answer. He begins with weddings, chapter 2, verse 19 through 20. Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken, and you could read that, taken violently, as in the cross, be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Jesus said, my coming and my presence here right now is much like a wedding. Now, all the Jews allowed for those attending a wedding and for the bridegroom and for the uh, bride 
to abstain from fasting during a wedding. In fact, they would engage in a large celebration when it came to wedding. These were peasants, and the wedding day and the wedding week didn't just last for a day, but the wedding week and its celebration was a high point in the life of a peasant. I mean, this is what they started looking forward to all of their lives. And what they would do is that they would abstain from fasting because it wasn't appropriate to fast during a wedding. And Jesus said, my presence here is a joyful presence, much like a wedding. And so, of course, my disciples don't fast. Now, at my cross, they're going to fast. And he's uh, rather, uh, uh, rather mysterious about that in verse number 20. But he said, that, that's what we will do. This is a time of joy. And it is a joy, let me announce to the world if they don't know, it is a joy to know Jesus Christ. And so there should be an outrageous joy in worship, in fellowship, in study, in obedience. In fact, His commandments are not burdensome. One of my favorite theologians is the late Irma Bombeck. And she told of the story of being in church one day, and a little girl was sitting in front of her in the pew, and she was looking over her mother's shoulders, just smiling at everyone. She wasn't making any noise. She wasn't squirming. She was smiling. And her mother found out and swatted her and said, this is church. Quit that smiling. <laughs> and the little girl did and had a forlorn look on her face. And her mother said, that's better. Let me say to you, Unless we are at a funeral, ladies and gentlemen, it simply is not appropriate to look like you have been baptized and drowned in pickle juice or vinegar. <laughs> You're at the wedding of the Lamb. And this previews that great day when He shall gather us up, and Christ will gird Himself in service with sweet manna all around. Then, he uses the illustration of patches, verse 21. And this makes perfectly good sense. It almost needs no explanation, but no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. The unshrunk cloth has yet to shrink. The old garment is weak. The unshrunk cloth is stronger. And so no one does that. If you need to patch an old garment, use an old uh, patch. If you need to patch a new garment, use a new patch. If you do otherwise, here's what will happen. Else the new piece pulls away from the old, and a tear is made worse. And Jesus is saying, what I'm doing does not fit into the Pharisees' system. Now this is one of the largest arguments about trying to mix world religions. And the silly notion that we all teach the same thing. Oh no, the world religions, even Judaism, is an old garment. Jesus is the new patch. We don't mix them. Then there are wineskins, verse 22. They would oftentimes take pig skins or pig bladders. They were new and pliable. They would put wine, and in case it fermented, it could expand. It had some elasticity to them. It wasn't so tightly wound like an old, dried-out wineskin. If it had been, and you put new wine into it, it would grow and burst. And Jesus said in verse 22, No one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. Jesus is making it clear that his new way does not fit with the old reason and the old ritual that is extra-biblical. Not biblical. 
In fact, you'll not find a verse here anywhere where Jesus is, is encouraging disobedience to Scripture. That's not the issue here. It happens to be the reasoning and the traditions of the Pharisees, which apparently were somewhat attractive to the disciples of John the Baptist. He came to fulfill the old, but not mix with it. It's this conflict over fasting. But then there's conflict over the Sabbath. And here, the Pharisees would have understood that Jesus was declaring war on their thinking. They ask about harvesting on the Sabbath, beginning in verse 23. Then beginning in chapter 3, they attack healing on the Sabbath. So he begins by, they, they begin by asking about harvesting on the Sabbath. And they attack harvesting on the Sabbath in verse number 24. Because of what happened in verse 23, the disciples were out going through grain fields on the Sabbath, and as they went, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. Well, they were hungry. They were in a field. Leviticus um, or Deuteronomy 23 allowed for this. There was no problem with this. And nevertheless, the the, um, Pharisees said, look, why do your disciples do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? They said and believed that by picking a few heads of grain when they were hungry on the Sabbath, that they were engaged in reaping or in harvesting. Not really. That's not what they were doing. They were eating. The Pharisees had an awful lot of laws about the Sabbath. It occupied large portions of their commentaries on remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. In fact, you could spat on a rock, but you could not spat on the ground because you might move the dirt and that would constitute plowing. You could not move furniture on the Sabbath because you might move dirt in your home and that would constitute plowing. You could only walk a certain distance on the Sabbath, but they got around that by placing toothbrushes at homes. So you could walk 200 yards and you could add an additional 200 yards because you had a toothbrush there and that constituted a home. And so you were going home every time you found your toothbrush somewhere around town. Now, that would create a lot of suspicion in and of itself. But the truth is, that's how they got around their laws about the Sabbath. They were rather silly. But Deuteronomy 23, 25 says there's no problem with plucking grain from a neighbor's uh, uh, field as long as you don't use a sickle. That would constitute intense labor, but otherwise you're meeting your need. Jesus ends up replying to this by authorizing meeting human need on the Sabbath, and he does so with three items here. In verse 25, he authorizes this by using David. He said, have you never read, which is a stunning irony, by the way, announcing this to Bible scholars, have you not read what David did when he was in need and hungry, and he and those with him. How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar the high priest and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priest, and also gave some to those who were with him. And that's true. The showbread sat upon a table about three foot long, uh, about a foot and a half high, and a foot and a half deep. And there were about 12 different loaves. It would stay there during the week, and it was only for the priest, but David and his men were hungry. And there was no problem meeting human need, and so the high priest gave him the bread, which the law said was specifically for the priest. Well, that law and that restriction was not intended to make men and women go hungry. It was to make sure the priest had the bread he needed during uh, celebrations and worship 
in the temple. And as long as it was there, it was fine. Well, if it was okay to set aside that law to meet human need, then certainly it's okay to set aside tradition to take care of human need as well. And so the example of David authorizes the disciples' behavior on the Sabbath. But then he authorizes meeting human need on the Sabbath in creation. He goes on to say, the Sabbath in Genesis 2 was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In fact, men and women were created before the Sabbath, which indicates their priority over the Sabbath. And God commanded rest, not to burden, but in order to restore humankind. The Sabbath restrictions exist to meet human need, and Jesus goes back biblically all the way to Genesis 2 to substantiate the disciples' or authorize their behavior. Then, this is a stunning, remarkable statement in verse 28. And Jesus takes the conflict and puts it into fifth gear and escalates it with these simple words in verse number 28. Now, let me ask you, back in Genesis 1 and 2, who created the heavens and the earth? You you don't know? God did. (laughs) Yeah, sometimes you people worry me. So God created the heavens and the earth. Who created the Sabbath and the seventh day? Thank you. Look what he says in verse 28. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus Christ here claims His Lordship in clear, indisputable, brilliant terms. I am the God of creation in Genesis 1 and 2, and I'll do with the Sabbath precisely what I want to do with it. It's mine, and I created it. So that's about harvesting. But then we go to chapter 3, and the whole issue intensifies over the Sabbath because there's a healing on the Sabbath. Beginning in verse 1, we find the problem of timing. Then he entered the synagogue again. And a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched him, Jesus, closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, Step forward. And he said to them, the Pharisees, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? Well, Jesus heals him. But the man was not in critical condition. He had a withered hand. He had done well the days before. He had survived well enough to make it to the Sabbath. And yet, Jesus insists on healing him that day when he could have waited another day at no expense to this man's life. The problem of timing appears here. Jesus insisted on doing good just as quickly as he could even on the Sabbath. But then there's the problem of his temerity. Chapter 3, verse 5. Not only has he told the man to step forward in verse 3, but when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts. Let's stop there for a moment. He looked around at them, and that is in the aorist tense. It's quick. He was grieved with them, and that's in the present tense. That means it is extended. So here's what he does. With anger, he looks. And then he's grieved. 
So his anger does not boil and roll for hours and months and years, as some do. It's a flash, and then he's grieved in his heart. And he said to the man, publicly, in this vast synagogue crowd, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Jesus publicly, unambiguously, healed this man on the Sabbath. Jesus Christ was not cowardly when it came to taking a stand for doing good and meeting human need. So Jesus here in Mark 2 and 3 clarified his priorities and his conflicts with the Pharisees. So let me ask and answer the question for just a few minutes. In just a few minutes, what is really important to Jesus? What are his priorities? Well, let me mention just a few. One is, Jesus prioritizes the biblical over human reason. And I want you to turn with me to Psalms 47 and Psalms 150. You remember in chapter 2, verse 25, Jesus asked the Pharisees, who were proud of their knowledge of the law and had memorized much of the Old Testament, Have you never read... You claim to be Bible scholars and value the Word, but have you never read the Word? Do you know that many of the aggravating and annoying conflicts that Christians face with their teenagers and in their homes and even in churches could be eliminated if we elevated the authority of the Word of God? Oh, this came home to me when I was a young pastor. And I don't recall exactly what went into the worship service, but... Uh, we clapped for a song or at some point in the worship service. And after the service, one of my members, who was known to be abrasive and cranky, who had graduated from one of our seminaries, had held one position and was fired from it because of an abrasive personality, confronted me after the service and said, My mother would roll over in her grave if she ever heard that clapping in church. Well, her mother was known to be abrasive too. And that's all I ever heard about her poor late mother, is how abrasive she was. And I directed Juanita to Psalms 47 and verse 1. Oh, clap your hands, all ye people. Shout unto God with a voice of triumph. Previous generations, and even some in this one, and I appreciate this, will shout an amen. I like that. (laughs) Some clap. Get past it. It's biblical. I don't mean to be rude or abrasive. But we're not going to aggravate people over an issue like that, especially when the Scripture substantiates it. And Juanita walked off from that discussion, silent, and never complained to me about clapping in church again. Turn with me to Psalms 150 as well. What kind of instruments are we permitted to use in church? 
Well, I say all the ones we have available. Now, I'm going to draw a line at spoons and the kazoo. But um, <laughs> thank you, Tim. Thank you. But look at Psalms 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty firmament. Praise Him for His mighty acts and praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Well, just exactly how are we to do that? In other words, He is great and our praise of Him has got to approach His greatness. Now, I'm dissatisfied. I don't think we ever quite reach it this side of the grave. But one day we will and we're aiming for that. We want our praise to be as great as He is. Now, now how do we do that? How can we approach that in this life? Well, praise Him with the sound of Dan and Chris's trumpet. And praise Him with what? Yeah, Linda's flute, or lute and harp. And praise Him, oh goodness, with Steve Skelton's timbrel. Did you really bring that in here today? Where is he? That joker brought a tambourine to church today and has been threatening us to use it. Steve, you can at 1 o'clock this afternoon. Praise Him with timbrel and praise Him with dance. Have you ever been in a worship service where people got on the aisle and rejoiced in the Lord? Now, half of you are going to pass out if that ever happens here. And, and, and don't, don't bring attention to yourself, but I've seen some mighty glorious worship services that on occasion, tastefully done, involved that. Then praise Him with stringed instruments. Do we have any stringed instruments? Well, the piano is one. But then there's some others, aren't there? Yes. And they're wielded quite well. And then praise Him with flutes. And then praise Him with loud, a type of percussion, cymbals. Praise Him with clashing cymbals. Let everything that hath breath... <laughs> I didn't know I was going to have so much help preaching this message today, but thank you. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. The Scripture allows us to use the instruments that God has given us in worship, and we shall. Protest, like Juanita heaped on me that day, is an indicator of either a rejection of biblical authority or an ignorance of biblical content. It's not a good thing. Oh, there's so many other issues. But let me just state this. The Bible is our authority, not our preferences, and not our late mother's opinion. And we shall stand on the Word of God. And we will not, and we're not permitted, to liberate where the Scripture restricts. Nor are we permitted to restrict where the Scripture liberates. My conviction is very simple. I'm just as narrow-minded as the Bible is narrow, and I'm just as broad-minded as the Bible is broad. But I'm just as narrow-minded as the Bible is narrow, but no more narrow. And just as broad-minded as the Bible is broad, but no more broad. And that's where I've got to stand, because Jesus Christ is Lord. Uh, what, what's important to Jesus, then, is knowing and obeying the Word of God and filtering all of our views and opinions through it. So can, can I uh, make a recommendation? And this is something I've been trying to do for some time, and I, I'm, I'm afraid I fall short, but I'm aiming for it, and that is this. Let us never develop a conviction 
about worship or music or our teenagers or any other thing without first filtering it through the biblical content found between Genesis 1 in its first verse and Revelation 22 in its last one. Let's be patient and wait to think through the Word of God and not merely respond and react because that often indicates either a rejection of biblical authority or more likely an ignorance of it. The second thing is Jesus not only prioritizes the biblical over human reason, but He prioritizes the gospel over human restrictions. Look with me at James chapter 2. What do we do about clothing? In church. I used to teach and communicate that you were to wear your best to church. Then I pastored men with $3,000 Armani suits and women with pieces of jewelry that ranked into the five digits. And they kept those at home because they were afraid of intimidating poor people. James chapter 2, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with fine rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes. It indicates clothes that are actually dirty and worn and ragged. And you pay attention to the one wearing fine clothes. Say to him, you sit here in the good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? In other words, you assume something about the poor man that is not true. And James makes that clear later. Ladies and gentlemen, we must have in our church families a heart for the gospel of Jesus Christ that is as broad as the gospel to where we can welcome those with dirty, shabby clothing and treat them with the same intensity and love and warmth and welcome as we would somebody who's sophisticated, refined, and elite, or were judges with impure motives. Now, this, this um, extends in many, many different places. But the point I want to make right now is the most important thing to Jesus is not that this person in James 2 graces us with his best clothing, but that we grace him with our best message, the gospel. C.T. Studd, the missionary, used to say, some want to live within the sound of church and chapel bell, but I want to run a rescue shop in the front yard of hell. And I think he was right. So is it important that the outside world agree with me about clothing? Is it Is it important that they agree with me about my convictions about the economy and my political convictions? I've been a political junkie. Since I was about in the eighth grade, I have been a Milton Friedman fan since my senior year in high school, but it simply isn't important that the outside world or even this one in here agree with me on those issues because our, our focus is the gospel of Christ and removing all human offenses that keep people from Jesus. Let us make sure that we are a church where the only thing that stands between people and Christ is God's own saving gospel and never a human invention. As many have said through the years, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. 
So Jesus prioritizes the biblical and the gospel, but then he prioritizes the needful. Jesus said in Mark 2.25, David ate the showbread when he was in need. And this is the need God had given him. And so the human need took precedence over the law. God never intended the Sabbath to keep people hungry or from necessary foods. The needs that we have then are important to God and He meets them. I remember when I was in college, I learned how to budget my time. I'd come from a rather disciplined family, so it it was something that I I did. But I I used to plan my schedule in 15-minute increments all day long. And so when I was young, and this continued somewhat into my first pastorate, modified a little, I rushed from one place to the next on campus and in church. And you know what older people would always tell me? You need to slow down. I have to tell you, I was very productive in those days. I don't remember what I did. (laughs) But I do remember reading passages like this and the Holy Spirit convicting me and saying, David, you love your schedule more than you love people. And that's not right. You're not meeting need. Then I came across an illustration about Jackie Onassis Kennedy, who was, Jackie Kennedy Onassis, excuse me, who was nervous about campaigning with her husband for the presidency. She did not know quite what to do and how to act in some of his campaigns. She said, what do I do? And he said, don't worry about anything. Just walk slowly through the crowds. And beloved, we do that because people don't necessarily need me to observe a schedule that is planned in 15-minute increments, but they do need love, and they do need an embrace, and they do need people to take care of them. Jesus prioritized the needful over human rigidity. So I will say to you, if you're rigid and tightly wound, I, I know what that's like. You're suffering from an awful lot of guilt and a very strong sense of failure. Because not only have the rigid failed to keep all the law of God, you actually are not even living by your own conscience. You've fallen and failed even that. I've got good news for you. Jesus Christ has His priorities straight. And He elevates your need to eliminate your guilt above your own personal virtue and righteousness. In fact, He elevated it above His own life by dying for every one of your failures at the cross. And that same Savior is alive today, ready to heal and to forgive. And the good news is you don't have to improve before you come to him. In fact, if you try, you will fail and you'll get worse. You have to come to him embarrassed, full of your shame, transparent with your failure. And if you will come that way and trust his cross and resurrection alone to eliminate your guilt, he will give you rest.
and He will give you peace. In fact, He says, Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for My yoke is easy and My burden is light. Do you sense your guilt? Do you trust His cross and resurrection alone? Are you willing to call on His name? There's good news for you today. You can lose your burden even now. And Father, we bless You. We praise You that Your Son has His priorities straight and that He's never confused. And I pray that right now You'll clarify for us that which is necessary, priority, and important. And I pray that friends today would feel urgency to come and turn their burden over to the Lord Jesus. We're going to pray in just a moment again. And we're going to stand. And when we do, staff will be here in the front to receive you. Would you come, share your spiritual need, and they will be very glad to help you with it. Maybe God wants you to be a part of this church. We want you to come. Maybe he's calling you to ministry or missionary service. Maybe you've got some other burden. Maybe you've had some conflict with someone that you're sitting next to and you need to come to the altar and turn that over to God. If you come that way, we won't assume that about you. We don't know your need, only that which you share. But we want to help and now's the time to get some help. Would you quickly stand with me? Let me finish my prayer and we're going to ask you to come. Lord God, I pray that our hearts would experience a new liberty in Jesus Christ and that we would adopt His priorities in these moments as we sing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You come. Please come.